There's a type of teaching out there that says that if you trust in Jesus, your life will become outwardly better. You'll have better health, you'll do better financially, uh, and all your relationships will flourish. And if that doesn't happen, then your problem is simply your lack of faith. That if you really had faith, your life would be prospering. And that if you're suffering, it's just because you don't have enough faith. That there must be some sin in your life that is causing what you're going through. That the crisis that you're maybe facing right now must mean that God is punishing you. Because if you had enough faith, it wouldn't be happening. But there is a problem with that sort of teaching and the problem is called the Bible. Because throughout the Bible it is clear that trusting in God doesn't give people an easy ride through life. And that's something we see very clearly in the verses in front of us tonight. Uh, We'll look at them under three headings. uh, Seeing firstly, following Jesus doesn't mean the storms won't hit. Following Jesus doesn't mean the storms won't hit. How do you feel about flying? I don't mind it, but I don't love it. Uh, not that I've been, been in a plane for a long time. But, but what I find that makes the experience worse is when there are others on the plane who are properly scared of flying. And every time the plane hits a bit of turbulence, they, they gasp or grab the person beside them or clutch on tighter to the arm, armrest. And if you were to judge how the flight was going based on their reactions, you'd be a nervous wreck. And so I find that it's better to look at one of the flight attendants because they've seen it all before and they're not going to look worried unless something really worrying is happening. And we can tell how bad of a storm is recorded in these verses by looking at the reaction of the disciples. Because many of them were fishermen, they knew this stretch of water, the Sea of Galilee, like the back of their hands. Uh, like some of the, the Stena or P&O captains going across to Belfast or, or Larn. Uh, the disciples had been on this same route day in, day out, uh, and they'd done it for most of their lives. Uh, and so if we want to know how severe this storm is, look at how the disciples react. Uh, they're absolutely terrified Uh, mark most likely got got the information for his gospel from peter Uh, peter was a fisherman uh, and this is clearly an eyewitness report there there are little details that only an eyewitness would remember that come across in nearly every verse verse 35 that the time of day Uh, verse 36 that the fact that other boats were were with them you know, if someone was making this up, why, why mention other boats? They don't play a role in the story. We don't hear anything about the other boats. And yet, uh, this is an eyewitness account. The other boats were there. We're told about it. And the fact, verse 38, that Jesus is, is not only asleep, but he's asleep on a cushion. But what comes across above all, in all the details, is the fear that struck the heart of these men. You can picture the the waves getting higher and higher until they start breaking over the side. And then the water level inside the boat starts to build up as well. It's dark. We're told that evening had come. 
And it's going to look that they're not actually going to survive this. Yet all the while, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Uh, Soon the disciples are are frantic. They, They wake him, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? So it's a a severe storm, uh, but storms happen. God's people get caught up in all kinds of natural disasters. Is the the point of the story not simply that Jesus calms the storm? Well, that's coming, but, but before we get there, we can't just skip over verse 35. The most amazing thing about this storm isn't its ferocity. The, the Sea of Galilee was well known for the fierce storms that would come down on it. The most amazing thing is that the disciples were only in the boat in the first place because Jesus had told them to go across to the other side. Verse 35, let us go across to the other side. And, uh, and we need to read everything that happens afterwards in light of that. Rather than the storm interrupting Jesus' plan, The storm was part of his plan all along. It's so easy when the storms come into our lives, when everything seems to be going wrong, to assume that Jesus isn't in control. To assume that the situations we find ourselves in couldn't really be happening if Jesus was as powerful as we thought he was. But actually, Jesus led these first disciples into that storm on purpose, And at times he does the same with us. Just because hard things come into our lives, it doesn't mean that everything has gone wrong. The storms are part of Jesus' plan too. And we can be sure that he has a purpose in them. But there's another reaction too we can have when the storms of life come. Uh, We we realise the storms are coming from God ultimately. And what do we assume? We assume that we must have done something wrong to bring these storms on ourselves. That if only we'd been more wholehearted in our obedience to God, things would not have gone so wrong. That because things are happening to us, which aren't happening to other Christians that we know, that they must be better Christians than us. But look at the disciples here. They've been listening attentively to Jesus teaching all day Uh, verse 35 on that day uh, it's the evening of the same day where he's been telling them the different parables in the rest of the chapter and now they set off in the boat because he tells them to so the disciples are in the path of duty when storm hits uh, they're, they're walking in the, in the ways of obedience. They're not like Jonah running from God and God sends a storm to bring him to his senses. The disciples are doing exactly what God wants them to do and the storm still comes. Have you ever found yourself thinking back to a decision that you weren't sure about? And thinking, well, if only I'd chosen the other option, none of this would have happened. Yet that assumes that the right decision is always the one that involves the least suffering. Yes, sometimes our suffering is a direct result of sin. Sometimes we bring unnecessary suffering on ourselves. 
but suffering can just as easily come to those who are sincerely trying to obey God. Think of a godly Christian lady uh, confined to a wheelchair for most of her adult life. Is that because she somehow had less faith than other Christians or than the, the unbelievers next door? Or the American pastor a few years ago whose wife and unborn child were murdered in a robbery gone wrong? Is that because he was less godly than the other pastors in his town? We so easily assume that what's happening to us is because we have done something wrong. But this storm that hit the disciples shows that that's just not how it works. There's no simple relationship between obedience and a trouble-free life or between disobedience and suffering. I think we would agree that it would be wrong for someone to assume that just because their life is going well that God must be happy with them. And in the same way, it would be wrong for us uh, it would be wrong for you to assume that, that because your life seems to be going badly that God is angry with you. These disciples w- would soon be called to follow Jesus, not simply across a lake, but to their deaths. Uh, and we're called to do the same. Jesus says elsewhere, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So often we go through our lives trying to avoid suffering at all costs. Maybe we even counsel other people to take the route that involves least suffering. Uh, but surely avoiding suffering shouldn't be what we aim for, uh, even if it was possible. But it's not possible anyway because we live in a fallen world and we're followers of Jesus. Instead, what we should try and avoid at all costs is sin. But so often we do it the other way around. We, we do nearly everything to, that we can to avoid suffering, do nearly anything to avoid suffering, but we don't put anywhere near as much effort in to try and avoid sin. Uh, we're cautious about putting ourselves in situations where we might catch some sort of sickness, But are are we as cautious about putting ourselves in situations where we might face strong temptation to sin? So here we see Jesus leading his followers into suffering, which tells us that following Jesus doesn't mean the storms won't hit. And that when they do, it doesn't mean that you must lack faith. In fact, it may be God giving you an opportunity to show your faith. Uh, And secondly then tonight we see that nothing you'll face is outside Jesus' control. Nothing you'll face is outside Jesus' control. How many times in the gospel accounts do we read of Jesus sleeping? Just one. uh, And it's right here when the, the storm is raging all around. We're about to get one of the clearest glimpses in Mark's gospel so far that Jesus is God. But here we have a clear reminder that he is human as well. After a long day of teaching, Jesus lies down in the back of the boat, puts his head on a cushion and falls asleep. 
That maybe to us that doesn't sound a very human thing to do, to be, to be able to sleep when a storm is raging and everyone around you is losing their heads. But here we surely see that Jesus' humanity was perfect humanity. He had complete trust in his heavenly Father. It's an example of what we should be like in a crisis, but often aren't. When everyone around us is losing their heads, we should have a complete reliance on God that stands out as different, that those around us can't understand. Our little chorus I I, I learnt when when I was little, uh, with Jesus in the boat, we can smile at the storm. And that's what we should be like. Uh, but the, the disciples, they, they can't understand Jesus sleeping. And so they, they wake him with their panicked question about whether he cares about them. Imagine the question. Jesus is the one who is upholding all things by the word of his power. Uh, that's Hebrews 1. At that very moment, uh, he was upholding the lives of these frantic disciples. It is only by his will that they even had the breath to ask the question about whether he cared. And yet here they are using the very breath that he has given to them to ask if he cares whether they perish. And yet... In the original language, the way the question is phrased means that they expect a positive answer. In other words, they call to him not because they think he doesn't care, but because everything they've seen about Jesus tells them that he does care. The reason that that they are so blunt is because it seems to contradict everything they have learnt about him. They know that he cares about him. Which is what makes his apparent lack of concern so surprising. Saying, don't you not care that we are perishing? We know that you do. Many Christians go through life doubting God's love for them. We can think of God watching our every step with with a stick at the ready, just waiting to beat us if we step out of line. And maybe we base our views of God on our experience of a human father who's been absent, whether physically or emotionally, and that can shape how we view God. We think of him as someone who will never really be pleased with us, no matter how hard we try. But look at the disciples here. They don't know much It'll be a long time compared to uh, until they fully grasp who Jesus is. It'll be a long time before they're able to, to write the, the letters, some of them letters to, to different churches. But one thing they're convinced of about Jesus is that he really, truly cares about them. And Jesus cares about you too. We, hopefully know more than the disciples did at this point in their experience with Jesus but if we can say well I don't know much but I know that Jesus really cares about me then we're doing all right we're doing all right so Jesus wakes up and in a couple of words he calms the storm 
He shows that he's in complete control of it. Of course, Jesus could have done that at any point. He could have stopped the storm coming in the first place. He could have uh, stopped the storm before the boat started filling with water. And so the fact that Jesus lets it go on this long means he has a purpose even in that. And it's the same in your trials and in your suffering. Jesus could stop it in an instant. And if he doesn't, it means he has a purpose in it. So what is Jesus' purpose here? Well, we're not told for certain, but uh, we, we perhaps have a clue in the fact that uh, unusually for him, Mark tells the, the story from the point of view of the disciples. It puts the, the spotlight on them, in a sense, and particularly in verse 40, on their faith or, or lack of it. Uh, one commentator says the storm was intended to make known to the disciples how weak and inconsiderable their faith still was. Uh, one of the reasons God let, lets trials come into our lives is to show who we're really trusting in. Because it's easy to think that we have a strong faith in God when things are going well, but when the supports are pulled away, what then? It was easy for the disciples to look like strong followers of Jesus as they stood next to him during the day as he taught the crowds. But what about when it's night time and it's just them and the sea? Uh, the sea, which, which to the Jews symbolised everything that was evil. How strong is their faith then? And of course, Jesus isn't just doing this to prove a point. He's doing it so they'll realise how weak their faith is, so that they'll not think they're stronger than they really are. If you have a, a car and the fuel gauge says that your tank is always full, uh, things might seem good for a while, but, but eventually uh, things will grind to a halt. Uh, and you'll realise that no matter what it, what it may have looked like, your tank was empty. It is always good to have an accurate picture of where you're at, even if it's not pleasant. Uh, and here... When Jesus strips back all the props, it becomes clear just how timid the disciples still are, just how weak their faith is. Now that's not to say that this is always the reason why God brings suffering into our lives. It may well be the reason here, but there are, are lots of different reasons why God brings suffering into our lives. It's hard to know what the reasons are. Uh, sometimes in this life we'll never know. But what you can be sure of is that if you're a Christian, God doesn't bring suffering into your life for the sake of it. He does it for a reason. And that reason is good. So nothing you face is outside Jesus' control. In fact, like the disciples, what you're passing through is part of his perfect plan for your life. Even if right now it doesn't look anything like it. And so our biggest need isn't to avoid suffering. Our biggest need is to trust Jesus in the midst of it. Uh, and trust that nothing we're facing is outside his control. Thirdly and finally this evening, our, our problem is that we fear the wrong thing. Our problem is that we fear the wrong thing. 
were you ever off school for a couple of days uh, and you came back and you couldn't understand what people were talking about uh, because they'd be referring to, to something which happened uh, yesterday or the day before and you wouldn't get it. Uh, you weren't there when that person did that thing. And we can be a little bit like that when we read the New Testament uh, because it is saturated in the Old Testament. The New Testament is written by people who were brought up living and breathing the Old Testament. It's in their veins. It's the air they breathe. And so we need to put ourselves in their shoes uh, in order to fully understand uh, this parable. When the disciples cry to Jesus for help, they, they obviously expect Jesus to do something But what Jesus does is so much more than they expect that by the end of the story they are more in awe of Jesus than they ever were of the storm. They're afraid of the the storm. Uh, Verse 40, why are you so afraid? But by verse 41, uh, they're filled with great fear uh, because of what Jesus has done. So why does Jesus' calming of the storm strike more fear into them than the storm itself? Well, the answer is because they were all familiar with something that we're not quite as familiar with. They knew the Old Testament in a way that we don't. And they knew that what Jesus had just done is something straight out of Psalm 107. Calming a storm like this was something that the Bible described only God as doing. Psalm 107, uh, we'll we'll sing it at the end. It talks about men who are at their their wit's end. In verse 28, they cry to the Lord in their trouble and he delivers them from their distress. In verse 29, he, he makes the storm be still and the waves of the sea be silent. And that is exactly what Jesus does what they have read about on the pages of Scripture, what they have sung about, is now what happens. And it's not like the storm begins to subside when Jesus speaks. It's not that Jesus speaks and that's the turning point and after that that things begin to calm down. But it goes from raging wind and waves uh, to as still as glass in a split second. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. The great storm is followed by a great calm. As someone has said, the elements knew the voice of their master and like obedient servants were quiet at once. The wind and the waves, like obedient servants, they hear the voice of their master and immediately they're quiet. And at this point, the disciples realise that that an event they've been singing about their whole lives has just happened in front of their eyes. Which can only mean one thing. That this man they're travelling around with, eating with, talking to, is God himself. And so no wonder we read that they're filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The problem in verse 40 is that they were afraid. Uh, The word means cowardly or timid. 
that particular word in verse 40 is always used to describe a sinful fear. But now in verse 41 they have a true fear of God. It's a different word for fear that's used. It refers to a type of uh, fear that can be appropriate. Uh, Why is that significant? Because it tells us that their problem wasn't being afraid, but they were afraid of the wrong thing. In other words, the disciples should have been more in awe of Jesus than they were of the storm. Can fear be a healthy thing? Well, well, surely it can. Think of someone working with electricity. There is a healthy kind of fear that doesn't leave you a shivering wreck. But it will mean there are certain things that you won't do. You realise the power that electricity has and so you act accordingly. And in the same way, if we truly realised the power of God, we would respond rightly. Our problem at times, however, is that like the disciples, we can fear the wrong thing. A lot of the time, what do we fear most? Will we fear other people and and what they'll think of us? We can be timid and cowardly when it comes to to them. Uh, We don't want to do things that make us stand out as different. Or we uh, we fear suffering and death more than sin. And so what we really need is a healthy fear of God, a true understanding of how awesome and holy he is, that he is the one who gives us breath, that he is the one we will one day give an account to, that he is the one who determines our eternal future. Mark was writing to Christians in Rome, many of whom would be called to suffer greatly for their faith, Christians who would be crucified or set on fire or thrown to the lions. And by including this story, he's showing them the one they should truly fear. As Jesus himself says in Luke 12, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that of nothing that they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Often for us, fear and goodness are in separate categories, but God is both good and someone we should be fearful of. Uh, One of the, the best illustrations of this comes from the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. In it, you have four children who've arrived in uh, Narnia, a land of talking animals, uh, and they find out that they're going to be meeting Aslan, the great lion. Uh, uh, so they think he's going to be, be a, a man because he's a king, but when they find out that he's a lion, they ask, is he quite safe? To which they get the response, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not domesticated, not some jovial granddad in the sky. He isn't safe, but he's good. And as we close tonight, it's worth noticing where in Mark's gospel this story comes So far in chapter 4, we've had one of the longest blocks of teaching in Mark's gospel. 
And the message of the parables of this chapter so far has been that the kingdom of God is small and unspectacular now. And that is an important message to grasp. We need to be prepared for the fact that the kingdom of God isn't going to look big and impressive now. And yet it's almost as if Mark doesn't want us to focus on the smallness of the kingdom. Because after those four parables, he includes four awesome miracles. First, Jesus calms the storm. Then he heals a demon-possessed man. Heals a woman who no doctor can help. And finally raises a girl from the dead. So yes, the kingdom is small and unimpressive now, but the king we serve is still great and mighty and glorious. And he cares about us. The one who even the wind and sea would obey would let himself be nailed to a cross by people he had created, sustaining their very breath as they hammered in the nails. And he would go through that to open up the way for us, not to get to the other side of the lake, but to come into the very presence of God. Amen. Well, let's praise the one who stilled the sea in the words of this psalm that the disciples knew and which they were now seeing lived out before them. Psalm 107 It's verses 19 to 23, page 267. Page 267, Psalm 107, 19 to 23. In verse 19, God is the one who stirs up the wind in the first place. Uh, The suffering that we face in this life is not random or meaningless. In verse 21, over the page, Jesus' people cry to him for help. Uh, because they know he cares about them. And in verse 22, he stills the storm and quiets the waves of the sea in an instant and with a word. How do we react to what we have seen tonight? May it be in the words of verse 23, let them give thanks now to the Lord for love that never ends and for the works of wonder done unto the sons of men. Sometimes we worry about human love that it will come to an end, that it will reach its limit, but not the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the tune is Newington, which is 1, 2, 3. Uh, tune 1, 2, 3, and verses 19, 23, uh, starting on page 267. If you're able, we'll stand as we sing praise. <laughs> 